I appeal to you, my brothers, to be on your guard against those who cause dissensions and put obstacles in other people's path, acting in opposition to the teaching which you have been taught. Avoid their company. Men such as these are not the servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are enslaved by their own appetites, and by their fair speaking and flattering words they lead astray the minds of those who lack in their guile. As for yourselves, the report of your loyal obedience has spread everywhere, and so it has caused me to rejoice over you. Still, what I would wish is that you should show yourselves to be men endowed with shrewd wisdom wherever a good purpose is to be served, while being mere innocents as regards the accomplishment of anything evil. And before long, God, the giver of peace, will crush Satan underneath your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, the Kassirer version. Let me ask you a question. When you read the title of this message, Crushing Fear, you had one of two responses. Either you would have interpreted it as, oh, this is a message about the crushing power of fear. Or you would have thought, this is a message about how to crush fear under my feet. Now, one of those two responses could possibly tell you whether you are a fear crusher or one being crushed by fear. Now, there's no shame in the weaker response as long as we choose not to stay under it. The entire Word of God from start to finish, is an invitation to refuse to be crushed by fear. Some people like to point out that there's 365 verses in the Bible that say fear not, one for each day of the week, but technically there's over 450 statements in opposition to fear. Fear is the faith force of the powers of hell. So the Bible has a lot to say about breaking its power. And, of course, it would make sense that one of the things the enemy would seek to do is attack the source of faith, the scriptures, in order to undercut and overthrow our place to stand. I have a letter here from a young seminary student that expresses just that issue when he says, quote, The more I learn, the less I seem to know for certain. It seems that all our studying and all our classes focus on what we don't really know for sure. This part of Scripture is questioned by these scholars, and that part is probably inserted by later scribes. This translation is suspect. That interpretation was politically motivated. On and on it goes. I no longer have a sense of awe when I approach the Scriptures. I'm beginning to feel that it is under my searchlight rather than me being under its searchlight. In no way does this give me any sense of superiority. On the contrary, it has made me feel less secure than I've ever felt in my life. If I cannot bow to the authority of God's Word, if it can be made to bow to me, I'm on sinking sand. Add to the other pressures of my life, or add to that the other pressures of my life, relationships, then he lists insecurities from childhood, sexual temptations, anxiety over the economy, and I'm beginning to feel myself splitting apart inside. I either give over to some comfort, some, some habit, some behavior that only temporarily 
soothes my pain, or I go up into my head trying to ignore my pain or lust or fear by studying. But mostly, I'm just an emotional wreck, he says, looking for someone to hold on to me and pick me back up and show me where to live and how to live. Where do I turn from a, for a solid place to stand if I can't trust the Word of God as it's plainly written? Then there's the evangelical spin, the Catholic spin, the charismatic spin, the liberal spin, on and on. And each of these schools of thought contains inner oppositions to each other with their own conflicting spins on the truth. And I'm spinning around in it all like a bug in a cultural blender. But he closes by saying, all joking aside, I'm really frightened. Where do I go from here? When it all stops spinning, where will I finally land? First, an overemphasis on the mere intellectual understanding of Scripture has plagued Western theology for years. Scripture has been stolen from him because the loss of childlike awe and wonder of coming before the holy and allowing himself to be defined and indwelt and empowered by the real presence who wrote the scriptures is completely lacking. He doesn't go to a liberal seminary, by the way. He goes to one that affirms the authority of scripture. And yet this dissecting of scripture in a certain spirit of hyper-intellectualism has done nothing more than dissect him. Notice that there's nothing in the note from this student about his prayer life or his worship life. Now, he obviously used to have one or have some sense of it because he speaks of having, quote, no longer having a sense of awe. How did he lose it? Well, here's a clue. He's studying theology, philosophy, language, psychology, sociology, and in his spare time reading every opinion in print besides periodicals, news articles, archaeology reports, on and on and on. In his attempt to reach for and grasp everything, he has lost hold on anything. Now, to his credit, he recognizes the problem and wants it corrected. But instead of writing to me, whom he perceives, I guess, as some, you know, another authority figure, quote-unquote, which I'm not, but he perceives me to be someone who can give him another intellectual spin, he should go to the one who wrote the book and place himself in the presence and do what the old-timers used to call praying through. You've never heard that term. It's, it's a loss to you. Because in a previous generation, when we were less intellectual and more childlike, but saw a lot more fruit from prayer, because of the power of the presence. The old-timers talked about praying through. That meant they stayed on their knees before God until there was a breakthrough in the situation they were crying out to God about. Knowing that God alone, God's presence alone, was the only thing that could make the difference. The Bible was not seen as an end in itself. It was pointing to a person. Now, this is an insecure place for the flesh, but it's a very powerful place for the spirit. Because when you're 
when you're in a position where only God is your hope, only God is your source, only God is your focus, it means that if God does not show up and manifest his real presence, all is lost, and no amount of human study or effort or spin will bring things right again. To be hopeless without God is the best place in the world to find ourselves, and I think we're pretty much there, although we may still have some ways to go before we're truly there. We're in a time when there are too many voices, too many spins, too many opinions, and opinions offered with an attitude of authoritative force that they don't really have. All the old conflicts are rising again with new ones added. Judaism versus Christianity issues, Catholic-Protestant issues, Calvinist-Armenian issues, evangelical-charismatic battles, fundamentalist versus liberal oppositions. Everything seems to be becoming more itself, for good or for evil. All things are taking on their nature and becoming more manifestly what they really are. And it's not just in the Judaic-Christian inner conflicts. The whole world is in this same metamorphosis, uh, separating the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, I don't know. Socialism versus capitalism, materialism versus supernaturalism, atheism versus new ageism, internationalism versus nationalism, racism versus one worldism, even male female conflict between the sexes rather than complementarity, and finally heterosexualism versus homosexualism. There's no end to the divisions, the the slicing up, the cutting apart. Uh, notice in the opening verse that I read from Romans 16, Paul's closing letter, closing words in the letter to the, the, the Romans, he says, um, beware of those who use arguments to, to divide and cast a stumbling block before the path of the simple who are not so uh, sophisticated, not so worldly-minded, not so uh, crafty, satanically crafty in the way they think. So they're easily tripped up because they don't have the capacity to weave words and and uh, uh, weave webs of confusion. Those who do these things, he says, are motivated mainly by one thing, their own appetites and desires. So when you weave a web that makes the law of God of no effect because it was merely the evolution of a tribal society in order to propagate itself because it was small in number and it it therefore made up uh, rules of, of uh, sanctity and marriage and sexuality so that it could survive the large numbers of the, I mean, all this kind of foolishness. I hate to even quote this stuff. It's so inane. But when you have that kind of sophistication presented to a less sophisticated childlike mind that just wants to love God and do what's right, uh, that's what Paul's referring to. And he says, Satan eventually will be crushed under your feet if you'll just be wise in what is good and childlike in relation to what is evil. But these divisions that I listed, you could list your own various manifestations of it, these mean upheavals, which will expose things at their source. 
forcing all of us to put up or shut up. If we don't know who we are and where we stand, we will be overthrown by any or all of these upheavals that are coming, spiritually, sociologically, politically, sexually. Now, have you thought about the word diabolical? Have you ever, have you ever thought about the meaning of the word? What, what is parabolic? Something is parabolic. It means that it is like, it is, it is a parable. It, it, what is it? Well, what's a parable? Well, it's, it's a story. Well, that's not the root meaning of the word, though. It is a story. It's a story that's meant to show another meaning. Uh, it, it's the word parabole in Greek means to lay alongside, para, alongside. And then, uh, uh, so if that's what a parable is, something that's laid alongside in order to clarify or, or illustrate, what is diabolic? First John chapter 5, verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. Diabolic, di- the diabolical comes from the word, of course, diabolos, uh, slanderer, accuser. And to be diabolic is to not cast something alongside of, but to cast something in the path of. A, a, the diabolic is meant to divide, slander, accuse, cast blockages in the path in order to force divergences, to separate, lead astray, deceive, distract, lead off the path in order to destroy. Now Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 verse 25 that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan comes, John chapter 10 verse 10, to steal, to kill, and to destroy, to divide, to destroy. We tend to think of the word destroy in reference to a bomb going off, you know, some big cataclysmic thing, and certainly that's part of it. But in this context, destructive power is in a more subtle, quiet form, leaven, quiet and invisible, working underneath to eat away and corrode the foundations so that the house collapses. And that's the idea here of a house divided against itself, not being able to stand. It's not a bomb going off. It's an inner corrosion brought by lies. Now, there's a kind of division that produces unity. You know this. Uh, There can be no trinity without Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father's not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father, and yet they're one. Marriage is another picture of it. Mary and I cannot have intimacy unless I give her freedom to be herself and she gives me freedom to be myself. Our division then is the foundation of our unity. By the very nature of uh, these kind of relationships, you have to have division to produce unity. Holding two seemingly opposite positions in tension in order to maintain integrity, as in the study of paradox, uh, is another example. Um, You have sovereignty and free will. You have God's holiness and yet God's love. Dying in order to live. These are 
biblical paradoxes. If you try to do away with the paradox by doing away with one or other of the two seemingly opposite issues, you lose all of it. This is not a contradiction, but a revelation of reality. To destroy the two points of view is to lose both. All false doctrine comes from trying to do away with one side or other of a paradox. The struggler seeks to answer one end of the mystery by doing away with the other and ends up losing the truth completely. We are actually engaged in another example of the need to hold two ends of a truth in tandem without giving up either one in this study that we're into right now. On the one hand, we need the revelation of Scripture. And anything that contradicts Scripture must be rejected. On the other hand, though the very Scripture uh, is our, our source, we appeal to for authority, that very Scripture tells us to listen to God's voice, to seek God's face, to trust His presence with us and in us, guiding us. If you claim Scripture with no spirit, you're dead. If you claim experience apart from Scripture, you're spooky or getting into spooky territory. If you honor the Scripture and seek to obey the one who wrote it by seeking his face rather than making the Bible an idol, you'll do well. The diabolic does not hold two opposites in tandem, but seeks to divide in order to deform, in order to destroy. Hitler loved to keep his leadership at total odds with each other, believing this would ensure the Hegelian principle that thesis plus antithesis would produce a new synthesis. Instead, it destroyed them all. Jesus said in John 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So the very nature of the satanic or diabolic that divides will always weaken and finally destroy. Now, in the individual's heart, this is uh, referred to in Scripture as uh, in many different places. John, uh, James chapter 4, verse 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded First uh, Chronicles chapter 12, verse 30, 33, uh, men who were expert in war, who did not have a double heart. Psalm 86, verse 11, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 25, 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. This word integrity uh, has to do with integration rather than having a divided heart, a heart seduced by the diabolic, a heart uh, following off off the path because uh, of, of a diabolic manipulation and falling into that trap, uh, the, uh, the heart of integrity stays on the path. Uh, if you want more on that from our study uh, resources, you can order the series called Integrity of Heart, which is six hours just on this subject of integrity, what it is. The divided heart is one that is mixed in its focus, in its affection, and in its allegiance. Such a person will not have the strength of a conviction to speak or to stand or to suffer for a truth that he does not truly embrace. He'll be, as James chapter 1 verse 8 says, unstable in all his ways. And when you Hear the insipid sophistry of the talking heads in the news as they twist their words into 
imbecilic deformity in order to avoid making any statement that might be politically incorrect. You hear things like, well, we must not use the word evil to describe those who blow up women and children. After all, in their eyes, they are patriots, not terrorists. That sort of useless babble. This is just an example of what it means to be unstable in all of your ways. And uh, it's a it's a too large a subject to follow off on to here, but let me just mention the obvious to you, and I'm insulting your intelligence by saying it. Any, you, you know it already. When you are unable to define light from dark, you're not able to defend yourself from evil. And so you become a sitting duck. Now, the spirit of the world is the spirit of the diabolical. He is the God of this world, Second. Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 1 John 5, we've already mentioned, the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. John's obviously not saying don't don't love trees and grass and blue sky and fishing poles and uh, nice automobiles and good food. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the system of diabolic manipulation that is so manifestly evident now. It's always been there, but it's more manifestly evident now in examples like what I just told you, where evil is not ever defined as evil, or it can be defined but by those who are only doing so with an evil intent. Uh, the left calls the right evil, and the right calls the left evil, and uh it all is just working for evil on both sides. That's not uh, the people of God are called to speak not from the left or, to, or from the right, but from uh, the spirit of God. So the spirit of the world is the spirit of the diabolical. In the name of unity, it divides. In the name of freedom, it enslaves. In the name of tolerance, it rejects. In the name of life, it murders. In the name of freedom from poverty, it steals. And in the name of equity, it dominates. You can add your own list. There's many more examples. This is the spirit of the world, the spirit of Antichrist. Messiah comes to unite, liberate, embrace, give life, reveal truth, and manifest love. The world is in opposition to him, so it is in opposition to those aspects of his nature. One does not have to know a lot of theology in order to live in the power of Messiah. John, speaking to an early Christian population devoid of most of the educational tools we have today at our disposal, said this to them, quote, Beloved, do not put faith in every spirit. Now, contrary to popular charismatic tendency, this phrase spirit here is not referring to evil spirits necessarily or to angels, though evil spirits and angels are involved, but it's speaking primarily of the voice, the breath, the ethos, the mindset, the character, motivation of the speaker, uh, blowing out of his mouth false doctrine, every wind of doctrine, or breathing with the breath of life the truth. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to discover whether they proceed from God, for many false prophets have gone forth into the world. By this you may know and recognize the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit which acknowledges the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and has become man is from God. Every spirit which does not acknowledge that but would sever or disunite him is not from God but is the spirit of Antichrist. See this severing, disuniting, diabolic that is weaving through this. This is from the Amplified, by the way, Amplified Version. By this you may know and recognize the Spirit of God, he says. So, little children, you are of God and have defeated and overcome the agents of the Antichrist, because he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. They speak from the world system and are therefore heard by and affirmed by the world system. But we are children of God. Whoever is learning to know God listens to us. This is how we know the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. With, you know, with all due respect to sound theology and the need to pursue sound theology, you realize here that John is, is not mentioning a great deal about the, the nuances of theological concepts that became so important in the second, third, and fourth centuries. He's talking about loving God loving other people, and doing what's right by them. And uh, so much of, of the doctrine of the New Testament, when it makes reference to right doctrine, sound doctrine, it's referring to ethical treatment. Now, some of my listeners could freak out at this point and say, my gosh, man, you sound like a flaming liberal. Sorry, I just sound like the New Testament. If you read it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really weary with people who have sound doctrine theologically but treat people cruelly. And I don't really know why that's such a hard thing for us to, to see. Maybe it's because we're all guilty of it in some form and we're blind to our own follies. But uh, sound doctrine... Yes, he's already stated Christ has come in the flesh. Antichrist denies that. That would include, by the way, in, in short-term conversation, that would his coming in the flesh means incarnated, died on the cross and rose from the dead. All that's involved there, yes. But the presence of the Holy Spirit in them, manifesting the character of Christ through them, is what John is referring to as sound doctrine. Uh, John wouldn't be impressed with people who can quote all of the uh, right doctrinal platforms of the of the second century church that uh, that wrote the creeds and yet mistreat their neighbor, not pay their bills, not stay faithful to their marriage covenant, live in sexual immorality, steal and and uh, uh, misuse the poor and uh, uh, not protect the widow and the orphan or the downtrodden or, or the stranger. All the things that uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism has in many ways completely ignored and said, if you are focused on those things, well, you're a liberal. We, we're committed to the truth and you liberals just care about all that social stuff. What a, what a travesty. 
And, and, and it's not a travesty based on some vagueness in the New Testament that we just ignorantly overlooked. It is not vague. It's clear. Uh, read Matthew 25. Uh, read uh, any of the prophets. Uh, read, uh, I don't know, read the whole Bible. <laughs> my, my point in this aside is that it's no wonder we don't have authority to catch the ear of the world because we have not demonstrated the Spirit of Christ to the world in ways that touch their hearts and open their minds. And you don't do that by acquiescing to evil and saying, oh, sorry, we were wrong. Sex is okay any form you want to have it. We didn't mean to be mean. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, surely you know that. I'm insulting your intelligence now. Then he goes on to say, little children, you are of God and have defeated and overcome the agents of the Antichrist because he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. How have He says you've already defeated them. How? By the indwelling presence of the one you worship. That's how you defeated them. They speak from the world system and are therefore heard by the world system, but we are children of God. Whoever is learning to know God, don't you love that phrase? Whoever is learning to know God. Have you got people around you who are not Christians, but because you are around them, they are learning to know God. See that the Holy Spirit can work the same way the enemy does, except for righteousness. Uh, the enemy works subtly and slowly and behind the scenes with seduction and lies and sophistry. Well, the Holy Spirit comes in also gently and subtly and draws and woos and reveals the, the grace of God through the loving behavior of his people toward those around them. Uh, don't be guilty of having a vision to save the world while you walk past the poor person who lives next to you and never give them the time of day. Whoever is learning to know God listens to us. This is how we know the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Well, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error is known by the manifesting of the character of Christ in love toward those around them, not by arguing in an argumentative spirit. Clay. Anyway, beloved, let us love one another. See, this is the bottom line. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, love that has grown up into its full maturity, that's the meaning there, casts out all fear. Perfect love drives fear out, crushes fear out of our lives. The only way to crush fear is to come into mature, full-grown love. And John here and all the New Testament writers describe this as a process, for which I'm very grateful. Included in that process is battling for truth, standing for righteousness, overcoming timidity, overcoming cowardice and self-protection, and possibly facing danger, mistreatment, and even death. 
The tools of our training in this are attacks from enemies, betrayal by friends, confrontations with evil, standing against the world for the world's sake, uh, sacrificing uh, our own comfort for the poor, uh, enduring a painful relationship in which you're not getting your needs met, but choosing to give instead of receive because you, your eyes on the prize, that every, every aspect of your life is in God's grace and God knows all about it and God is more interested in helping you become a man or woman of perfect love than he is in providing you creature comforts and emotional uh, goosebumps. Now, God's not against creature comforts, for heaven's sakes. God's not against you having fulfilled emotional, sexual, and relational joy. But his ultimate purpose for you is something that will ensure that fulfillment forever. While we, in our economic stupidity, would vie for the immediate pleasure that might cost us the eternal fulfillment. It's insane. See, when your goal is to become perfected in love and you trust the sovereignty and wisdom of God over your life to he who has begun a good work in you will finish it, then every aspect of your life is working, Romans 8.28, for your good and for the glory of God. And therefore, you don't think in terms of, boy, this is so painful, I want to get out of it because the immediate pleasure is all I care about. You think eternally, and because you think eternally, this increases your capacity to be patient, which increases your capacity to endure, which increases your capacity uh, to suffer, which increases your capacity for courage, which increases your capacity for love, acting in love. The power we draw from are, yes, the scriptures, but remembering that those scriptures point to a person, and it is the person in which uh, we find our source, our, our, our power, our energy. We live in and with him, and he lives and with us. Uh, he lives within and with us. It is that person we adore and worship and draw our life and strength from. It is the one who lives in us who bears us up and empowers us to love when we have no love, to stand when we have no strength, to stay peaceful when all around us is spinning and would enter into us and turn us into a spinning turmoil. But with uh, his presence in us, there's no vacancies. <laughs> the, the, wor the, the world can't get into us and spin us into a mess. There's no room for the spirit of the world to come in. We're already filled with another spirit uh, who can't be manipulated or turned upside down. Now, with all this as an introduction, I want to try to get to my point now. I want to look behind the scenes of a very familiar scripture. Many of us might quote it often. We've all spoken it at some point, maybe Maybe we have not considered the context in which it was first communicated, and we need to. We need to understand the the context if we are to gain from it all the meaning that it has to give. That scripture is Second Timothy 1, verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power 
and of love and of a sound mind. See, you do know this scripture, but why was it written to Timothy? When was it written? What motivated such a statement from Paul? What's the climate of the world situation when he wrote it? One of the things that ruins Bible reading for people is when they just think, well, Paul just started waxing eloquent and poetic and strung some words together. Now, every word is there for a meaning and is responding to a real issue. Before we examine these questions, let me, let me ask you something. What's on your mind as a husband, a wife, a parent, a friend? Who's on your mind when terrible events like Haiti or ominous threats like terrorist attempts on airplanes uh, get shoved into your daily routine? I know that Mary and I not only think of our own children and grandchildren, but we think of all of you scattered over many states, several nations, several continents. What do you think about what do you wish you could communicate in the face of these potential dangers to the people that you love? Paul was human. Consider the backdrop of the world events as they directly affected him and those he loved. Then consider what he had to say in the face of that. For what he had to say is the most important things on his heart and what he had to say to Timothy is a reflection of what would be on our hearts, surely, if we were facing our own ultimate issue of life and death. It's 66 AD. Rome has been burned, most probably at the hand of the maniac emperor Nero, who wanted to rebuild the central city so decided to destroy it in order to motivate the population to support his new building plans. A murderer, sadist, pedophile, rapist. Now add to those lists of evil, this evil. And the result of the, the burning of Rome was the cruel beginning of the persecution of the church because Nero scapegoated the church and set in motion the most demonically uh, energized uh, cruel behavior ever perpetrated in, in human history toward other people. In this fever of political insanity, Paul is arrested. Unlike his previous arrests several years before, where he was held in a rented house and from which he wrote his letters to Ephesus and Colossae and Philemon. This time, he's in a Roman dungeon. The air is rank and damp. He's cold. It's dark with only periodic light descending down to him from an iron bar-covered passage high above his head. Nearly all of his former associates have abandoned him. One even testified against him, Alexander. He knows his time is nearly over. And in this bleak scenario, his mind is on Timothy. He longs for him to come so that he can see him one more time. He asks him to bring his coat, because he's cold. And the books. Boy, can I relate to that. But especially the parchments. 
He also wants him to bring John Mark so he can see him one more time before leaving the earth. There's beautiful stories behind these stories, and if you want them, order our three-hour study called From Servants to Sons, How Jesus Disciples Men, if you want more study on that. Well, what's it like for Timothy? When he met Paul and first heard the gospel, he was just a boy. His mother was Jewish, his father was Greek, but his father must have died when Timothy was very young. He grew up in a spiritually sensitive and godly home and became a godly young man whom Paul took under his wing. Their relationship was one of the tenderest and close, most closely knit in all of Scripture, but it seems to never get much focus. Paul sees Timothy's weaknesses, his tendency toward fear that may have been the cause of his stomach ailments, his anxiety over Paul's imprisonments, and his struggle to stand against church-related difficulties and people who tended to dishonor Timothy's youth. Try to put all this together with regard to your own current outer and inner anxieties. A world on fire. Government corruption beyond calculation, economic turmoil, enemies without and within. Along with that, the daily demands brought on by personal weaknesses, relationship turmoil, and outright betrayals by those you thought were your spiritual family. Along with that, your mentor and father is back in prison, and not just prison now, but the dungeon with a certain death sentence unless God intervenes. And with many Christians already dying at the hands of evil and in ways more evil than known even in that evil world, there seemed to be no guarantee of such an intervention. Out of understandable concern that Paul may not live long enough for Timothy to reach him, he writes his last letter. Now, with this background in mind, notice that the special choice of words takes on a, a, a deeper meaning uh, because he wants his frightened son to hear them. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I worship with a clear conscience in the spirit of my fathers, when without ceasing I remember you night and day in my prayers. When I recall your tears, I yearn to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm calling up memories of your sincere faith. That is why I remind you to stir up, rekindle the gift of God that is in you by means of the laying on of my hands. Try to, try to lay aside the idea that you're reading Scripture and try to just read a letter written by a man who is in dire circumstances in the natural, but who, in the midst of that, is filled with joy, filled with strength, filled with love, filled with uh, memories, and memories that don't bring him uh, shame, 
but bring him comfort. And then out of that, he says to Timothy, now, listen, I want you to stir up, rekindle the gift of God that is in you uh, that we saw come upon you and enter into you when we laid our hands on you and blessed you and prayed for you, possibly at Timothy's ordination, if you want to think in those terms. Then he, it's in this background that he then says, verse 7, Stir up the gift that is in you, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, the Greek here is very interesting. God, definitely, absolutely. If, if, you, if you were to write it out in English, he's saying, listen, God is definitely and absolutely not the source of your fear nor the cause of your fear. God has not given us, and he includes himself. He's saying, look, Timothy, I'm not just saying you, you're weak and you got stomach trouble and you've always had a tendency to be shy. He's saying God has not given any of us a spirit. That's an inner character. Remember what I said a while ago about the word spirit. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Are there demons that produce fear? Sure. I think all demons produce fear. I think demons produce fear like uh, defecation produces stink. I don't think there's a... Uh, uh, that's probably too too pointed, but you get my point. Uh, this is not a demon of fear he's talking about necessarily. The word in Greek is delia. It's only used in this context in the New Testament, and it means timidity caused by moral weakness resulting in psychological disintegration, which leads to potential terror in the face of danger. <laughs> he said, God did not give you a timid spirit that produces moral weakness of self-protection that will result in psychological disintegration that will cause you to be filled with terror when you face danger. God's not into that. He said the, the, only, the only version of that in the scriptures is a judgment on those who have run away from God and chosen to turn away from God's promises and embrace uh, the spirit of the world. And that is found in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 36, where he says, I will, if you turn away from my covenant, if you step back into the world of the, of the, world, the flesh and the devil, the, the devil's territory, I will send dejection. This word in Hebrew, morek, is the lack of courage, faintness. He said, I'll send that on you into, into your hearts in the lands of your enemies. The sound of a driven leaf will put them to hasty and tumultuous flight. They shall flee as if from the sword and fall when no one is pursuing them. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword when no one is chasing them. You shall have no power to stand before your enemies if you turn away from me. He's just saying, you'll just go right back into the spirit of the world. That's the way the world operates. That's the way the world thinks. Uh, see, uh, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. God's not the source of the problem when it comes to the evil surrounding us. He has already overthrown it in the resurrection of his son. So do not faint and shrink back in the face of whatever comes, for the world is passing away. And its time is short. 
But he that does the will of God abides forever. Not a hair of your head will perish even if they kill you. Now, it's, it's fun to hear sermons like that when everything's peaceful and after church we're going to go get a pizza. But what if you're in Haiti? What if you're in the Sudan? What if you're in, you name any other number of situations, what if you're in America or England or Germany or Canada or New Zealand and Australia or and all of a sudden the world we've known crashes in around us and we are surrounded by what the third world has known for years or what China has known for years? Are you letting the Spirit of God work? Remember we, we talked about how this is a progressive work in us. That he who has begun a good work in you will finish it. How is he finishing it? Well, the irony is he's finishing it by taking you through the discouraging, difficult, heartbreaking, demanding, or boring situations, whatever they may be. Whatever they may be. Whatever situation you're walking through is meant to turn for your good and God's glory, Romans 8.28, to finish the work he's begun in you, Philippians 1.6, in order to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy, Jude says. And the, the, the end result is to be filled with the fullness of God, Ephesians chapter 3, so that you might manifest the complete love and character of God in the earth so that perfect love will be cast out, perfect love will cast out of you all fear first john chapter 4 verse 18 this every so paul says all things are for your sakes first corinthians says all things are for your sakes everything's for your sake numbers chapter 13 is the story we're all familiar with, uh, that Caleb stands before the people and says, we're well able to go in and take the land. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let's go up at once and possess the land, for we're well able to overcome it. But the men that went with him said, we are not able to go against this people, for they are stronger than we are. And they brought an evil report of the land which they had searched. Now, I want to come back to this if I don't get to come back in this study, I'll take it up in our next hour together. But there's something very important here going on with why Caleb had strength and confidence and the others didn't. But God has not given us a spirit of fear. Okay, we got that. But he has given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Power and love and a sound mind. Let's just examine this a bit, and we'll get as far into it as we can, and if we need to go on uh, in another study, we'll just have to do that. Power. Dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Are you beginning to catch on without me pointing it out over and over that the, the we're at the point now, folks, where one more book is not going to help. One more tape series is not going to help. Thank God for books and tapes. But you know what? There comes a point when I've got to put off the, lay aside the books and turn off the CDs. I'll never get used to saying CDs instead of tapes. You know, I bought a, I bought a car a few years ago that, that had a cassette player in it. 
it was a 1997. The guy that sold me the car he makes fun of me. He says, you know, Clay doesn't buy cars. He buys cassette players with cars attached to them. But I got thousands of teaching tapes, and I love them. I like listening to them, and I paid money for them, so I'm not likely to throw away throw them away because some some dude invented a CD player. But the point is, there comes a time you got to turn all that off and lay it aside, and talk to God, and listen to God. And if God's not talking, you just stay still till He is talking. <sighs> See, we're getting down to the wire now, folks. We've been talking about this stuff now for 20-plus years, practicing the presence, listening to God, obeying what we hear him say, walking in the Spirit. That's all fine and good. It's all good teaching. That's really good teaching. Well, you know what? It's It's not good teaching anymore. It's life and death and may become more so, will become more so, not may, will become more so. And if I should pass off the scene and some of you younger ones carry on, it'll be more real to you and more true for you till we're all together again and the smoke clears and the world is mended. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the presence that has been sent to abide with you forever, John fourteen sixteen says. This is the energy that empowers the courage that gives verbal ability its cutting force. John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Just read the whole, that whole chapter. You'll read John 14 through 17 with the fact in mind that Jesus is, is about to die and rise again. And he is, this is his last time to get to speak to his disciples. What does, does, does the gravity of that grip you? It's obviously why Jesus would spend his last night on the subject of the Holy Spirit, uh, speaking these things to them to prepare them for what was coming. We want power to be an obviously physical exerted strength that we can sense. That's why we want power to be that. Sometimes power is that. But sometimes it is in our weakness or through the faltering of our best efforts that this power is manifested. John fifteen five says, Without me you can do nothing. See, my weakness does not hinder God, and my strength does not help him. <laughs> it's taken me 55 years to learn that. I think I've got it now. My weakness does not hinder God, and my strength doesn't help him. It's my hard focus that makes all the difference. Micah uh, chapter 3 is an example of this. Micah is surrounded by false prophets and false teachers and brokenness and sin and religious hypocrisy. And he says, the seers shall be ashamed and the diviners will be confounded. They all shall cover their lips with uh, for shame, for there's no answer from God. His presence was never with them. But I am full of the power by the presence of the Spirit of the Lord. What judgments I speak will have power to come to pass as I reveal to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. 
Zechariah 4, 6, not by might of armies, nor by human energy, but by my spirit, says the Lord, will these things be accomplished. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul just wears out the Greek language with uh, descriptions of hard work. I really have to fight feeling ashamed of myself when I read this. I, I'm really, uh, I can be such a complainer. I, you know, I things can just aggravate the fire out of me uh, because I've got important things to do. And they are important, and I want to get them done. But, you know, Mary says, I get angry at the small things, and the big things, I just kind of rock through them, you know. But the little things just warm me up. Like red lights that are changing and making me stop when there's no no sign of a car in 360 degrees in any direction. There's no car. It's just a stupid machine. I mean, nothing winds me up like that when I got to get somewhere. Makes me so angry. Paul says here, we preach warning every man and teaching every person in all wisdom so that we may present every person mature in Christ. Toward that end, I labor. And then he he uses the word labor, which means to work hard to the point of sweat and toil, including conflict and frustrations. And he says, I work hard till the sweat's pouring down my face. And then he says, striving. And that word is, uh, it's where we get the word agonize. I strive with agony like an Olympic runner running toward the goal. According to the working, he says, I do all this, According to the working, and that word there is uh, where we get the word energy, that proceeds results and then produces results. An energy that precedes results but produces results, which works in me mightily. And that word mightily is dunamis, dynamite. He said, uh, I work really hard. And, And the picture, the reason I get ashamed of myself when I read that is, the reason I get so frustrated at the stoplight is because I'm feeling like I got all this stuff to do. I got just a certain amount of time to do it. And I got to deal with this stupid machine telling me that I can't go until it changes color. And sometimes it's stuck. And, you know, and I get so angry that my head could pop off. And by the time I do get through the red light and go do what I got to get done, I've burned up a whole lot of energy on anger and frustration where Paul says I just I press through all that stuff I don't let any of that stuff affect me I'm sweating he said it may look like I'm I'm working in my own strength it may look it may look to you like I am striving some psycho babble Christian who's read too many psychology books would start talking to me about uh, uh, you know, uh, being driven and uh, uh, not having my priorities in order and not living in the rest of the Lord and needing to uh, dial down and take a day off. <laughs> well, well, I don't, I mean, Paul, I'm sure Paul kept the Sabbath. I'm sure that the Sabbath kept Paul. But what he's saying here is, I. if you looked at me and saw me in action, it would look like I was striving in my own strength But he said, all the time, I'm aware in all the energies that I'm exerting 
that there's another power carrying me. And no matter how weak I may seem or how frustrated I may feel or how many obstacles get put in my path, I know I'm being carried to the goal by another power that is working through me to bring about results that I could never bring about. That's what happens with nightlight. That's what happens with this message you're listening to right now. You cannot imagine the crazy stuff that happens every time it's time to sit down and record nightlight. The, the, the interruptions, the craziness, the alligators crawling out of the toilet and, uh, giant elephants creeping through the, uh, air conditioning system. I'm, I mean, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. And I, you know, I, I'm babbling in a microphone thinking, what am I even talking about? Who's going to get anything out of this? And then I get it done, and I hadn't got time to edit it usually, and I've got to get it in, into the hands of the recorders. And then I get, I get a letter, or I get, an, I get a call, or I get an email from somebody who says their whole world was transformed. You know, that ain't me. Yeah, I'm working hard. I'm doing the best I can. Sweat's rolling down my face, so to speak. But the only thing that gives me the power to produce these messages is the awareness that all my working is not going to help God and all my weakness is not going to hinder God. All I've got to do is be willing and obedient. And this other power, this other presence comes through and uses whatever I'm doing for his glory and for my good and for your good. Father, I pray right now that whoever's listening, no matter how weak they feel, how daunted they feel, how hindered they feel, how frustrated they may feel, that they would stop and turn to you and ask for your presence to be manifested in the situation. And whether they feel powerful or not, they trust your promise to make good whatever is uh, in, in the situation, to turn it for good for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Lord willing, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.